When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower. And on today's episode, I'm interviewing Lenore Skenazy on the benefits of free-range parenting. Our kids are so much smarter, safer, and stronger than our culture gives them credit for. And instead, we're sort of undermining their development by assuming they can't handle things. And I'm not talking about horrible, bad things. I'm talking about a fight with a friend, getting lost, you know, being disappointed by not being chosen for the team or being scared because you climbed the tree really high and now you got to get down. And that seems somehow worse than getting up there. All these things are normal parts of life, a little bit scary, a little bit exhilarating, and muscle building. Lenore Skenazy is an American speaker, blogger, syndicated columnist, and author, known for her activism in favor of free-range parenting. In 2008, she wrote a controversial column on her decision to let her then nine-year-old son take the New York City subway home alone, which became a national story and prompted massive media attention where she was dubbed as America's worst mom. In response, she wrote the book, Free Range Kids, which has morphed into a global movement. On today's episode of Emotional Badass, I sit down with Lenore to discuss her story, the psychological effects of age-appropriate risk-taking on childhood, and some helpful tips for parents. Not only was this a wonderful interview, sitting with Lenore was like sitting with a soul sister. I really hope y'all enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thank you for coming on. I am sitting here with Lenore Skenazy, and I am extremely excited to have you so that we can talk about so much. I have been wanting to have you on for years and years. I'm excited to talk to you because before this was a term, I think I had a lot of this in my raising. Um, a little bit of my background is I come from a very dysfunctional family, mm. but I've done a lot of healing. And so I'm very open with my story. I sort of, I grew up and and put my stepdad in prison for abuse and my biological father abandoned but some of the highlights of my childhood was growing up with my grandparents and I had a lot of freedom. I went to the beach um, and was in charge of like 12 of my younger cousins, <laughs> like nobody drowned and I was in mm -hmm. charge. And, and that 
that's a big part of the resiliency that helped me heal my life. And so it's been hard for me over the last few years to watch. I'm, I'm almost a 20-year therapist to watch what I call safetyism sort of cripple the next generation. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you. I actually had found Let Grow a couple years ago and didn't realize that that was you <laughs> connected to that. Yeah. Um, so actually, this is the next... We do a Patreon pay it forward where we give, where we donate 10% of, of what comes in. And we we did a little contest a couple years ago between your organization and another and yours didn't win. And so I, in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, this is the next. And it was because it scares people to empower children and, and really see what they're capable of. So I think we're going to have a really great talk. So let's get into it, Lenore. So you first came on the scene many years ago by writing an article about allowing your nine-year-old to ride the subway alone. And the world sort of freaked out at you, I think, <laughs> yeah. and dubbed you America's Worst Mom. So I am honored to have America's <laughs> Worst Mom on with go. me today. Thank you, madam. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be that in a way. I mean, it's such a it's such a funny term at this point. I mean, my that nine-year-old is 25 uh, at this moment. So it's been a while. <laughs> Well, that's exciting too, because I get to interview you about how he has grown and what this free range kids lifestyle or theory or, or growth encouragement is and what that does for us. So talk to me a little bit about your own experience about what happened after you wrote this article or how you got to writing this article. Well, I got to writing the article. Um, I, I live here in New York City. And we have two sons. Um, the older one hadn't asked to ride the subway alone yet. And so we weren't thinking about that when our younger son, Izzy, who was nine, started asking, you know, can you take me someplace I've never been before and let me find my own way home by the subway? And I think if we'd been in the suburbs, he would have been saying, can I get on my bike and go to, you know, the sandwich shop or something? But we're here in New York City and we're on the subways all the time. So finally, my husband and I uh, said yes. And I took him. I took not the husband, but the son to a, a Bloomingdale's, which is a fancy department store in a nice part of town. And and I said, today's the day. And that's where I left him. And sure enough, he took the, the, the subway and then he had to take a bus across town. And he came home really proud and excited and happy. And, you know, you don't say somebody's born anew, but it was a new step, um, you know, a new phase in his uh, childhood. And I didn't write about it immediately because it wasn't a publicity stunt and it didn't strike me as that big a deal. But I was a newspaper columnist at the time when there were newspapers. And uh, so like a month and a half later, when I had nothing to write, I said, should I write about this? And my editor said, yes. And two days later, after the while that my nine-year-old ride the subway alone, I was on the Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR. And the interesting thing to me was not just getting dubbed the, you know, America's worst mom, but the conversations were... I mean, there were a million conversations after that. And so often the the gotcha question was always, okay, yeah, he's fine. But what if he wasn't? What if he had never come home? And it took me a long time to realize why I never had a great answer to that. You know, what do you say? I feel sad. <laughs> you know, I think they know that. So why were they asking? And I 
I've come to the conclusion it was for two reasons. One is to shame me. I mean, a good mom is supposed to always be asking themselves that question. How would I feel if something bad happened to my kid and I had allowed them any freedom? I'd feel terrible. It would all be on me. I would deserve, you know, uh, endless hate and shame for the rest of my life. So I guess I won't do it. So first of all, I hadn't gone to that dark place and stopped myself from letting my kid do anything. Um, I think the other reason, you know, there should probably just be one reason, but I do think the other reason is that what they had in front of them was a pretty unextraordinary story. You know, mom goes one way, kid goes another way, takes the subway home, the end. That's pretty boring. So you have to change it by what ifing. And they changed it from a story of a competent, happy, you know, resourceful young man to a story that almost, you know, there but for the grace of God ended up as a, a law and order episode. So they really, they they got it back on track to the story that the media loves the most, which is that a mom didn't do enough for her kid and her kid suffered and, you know, died. I mean, that's really the story that they wanted to tell and they got to it. And that's the story that you see, you know, it's just, there are certain storylines that cultures get used to. You, if you read a romance novel, you don't want the the prince going off with the princess. <laughs> you want him going off with the, you know, the maid, right? <laughs> or, or the, you know, the pauper girl or whatever. You don't want the CEO marrying the other CEO. You want him marrying the, the secretary who took her glasses off and wow. And similarly, we're used to the story of bad moms and tragedies that ensue. And my story was being pushed into that direction, even when it was a story of a perfectly competent kid and a and I'd, I'd say a normal mom. They turned me into a crazy mom. What do you think that did for your child? Like, what did you see <laughs> as his mother? And he wanted it, and, and I think that's an important. Very important. Like I was babysitting other people's children at 11 years old, like four-month-old baby and four-year-old little boy at the same time. Today, I think people would have called CPS realizing that I was allowed to do that. And I was very responsible, very capable, and very good at that. And I'm glad for you to name shame because I do think now in particular, you know, you're talking about years ago too. And I think that was maybe the beginning and it's been building about valuing safety and then valuing fear and really trying to use shame to inform people. I come from a Catholic background. And so I have thought endlessly about the term (laughs) Catholic shame Uh right? And, and what that has done to me in my life and what it is to become shame resilient and not be controlled by what other people think should shame you. Like I'm out there with a very intimate story. There are people who think I'm airing dirty laundry and how dare I and shame, shame on you. I've had therapists say, you're doing free therapy over your podcast and that is wrong and that is dangerous. Shame, shame (laughs) on you. If you don't think like me, shame, shame on you. I also think we have come to value safety And it's safety has somehow gotten smushed up with this mom (laughs) shaming. And when I hear you put it the way that you put it, what really strikes me is that's really about protecting the mom and her feelings and how what her friends are going to think and what society is going to think. And that's very different than what's best for a child's development. 
You got a lot to unpack there. I was nodding along with it all, frankly. Um, the idea that you would be shamed for helping people with your with your podcast. How dare you help people, you yes. hussy? Uh-huh. Uh, I want to I want to go back to the first thing you were talking about, which was there you were, an 11 year old taking care of a four year old and a and a and a baby. And I saw you smiling. Mm-hmm. And I wonder why. I, th- I think children naturally are capable of so much more. And something about modern life seems to be forgetting that, missing that, or parents need more control today than before or somehow. Well, let me say it better. I talk a lot about the pendulum swinging, you know, and I think we have had a massive, like if we look back at the parenting of like the 50s, mm-hmm. where it was basically like, go outside and then I'll see you in 12 hours. <laughs> right, right, right. And kids really had their own full separate life. Yeah. I think for my age in my early 40s, I have a bit of a different spin or a different experience because of the chaos of my childhood, I spent most of the the bulk of my development from about six to 12 living with my grandparents, Mm -hmm. living more in a city than in a suburb that was kind of a, a mix. And the empowerment that I felt, the permission to go have sort of my own life, to be given responsibility, that's actually really what grew me up. And it, it gave me so many resiliency skills. And I, the more that the pendulum has swung from that 50s, go ahead, I don't want to even see you. I'm right. very disconnected. I think it has attempted to come to a middle ground, but unfortunately, it's just kept swinging all the way into this other realm where we have such a tight hold. I cannot believe the stories I hear from people with teenagers that their children don't want to drive. They don't want to like leave the home and explore and they're not excited to hit 18 and get the hell out of the house and go go live a life. And I think it it is really thwarting the resiliency of society. That's a big statement to make, but that's really what uh, I think. Well, that's that's exactly what I believe. <laughs> As I've been saying it for a long time, it's always nice to hear it from somebody else. So I started the free range kids movement after um, the weekend that I was shamed on all these television shows. And I wrote the book, Free Range Kids. And then it grew into the nonprofit Let Grow um, about five years ago. And Let Grow is trying to make it normal to give kids back the good part of your childhood, Uh, the trust, the freedom, the responsibility, the wind in your hair, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. the exhilaration of being on a bike. The excitement of seeing the streetlights come on and you're going home in the dark. I mean, all these things that make you feel confident, competent, trusted, and happy to be alive, I would say. And I think part of a community because oh, yeah. it, because then that child, instead of just going to the parent, has to go, okay, which stranger am I going to go to to ask for help? And part of what we know is that we can empower kids to trust their own gut and to choose and to be wary of the people that maybe approach them, but for them to be able to choose. So there's so much emotional muscle building that I think free range parenting offers. That's literally it. Um, uh, One of our slogans we've got a ton (laughs) is that our kids are so much smarter, safer, and stronger than our culture gives them credit for. And instead we're sort of undermining their development by assuming they can't handle things. And I'm not talking about horrible, bad things like it sounds like you had in your early childhood. I'm talking about 
a fight with a friend, getting lost, um, you know, being disappointed uh, by not being chosen for the team or being scared because you climbed the tree really high and now you got to get down. And that seems somehow worse than getting up there. All these things are normal parts of life, um, a little bit scary, a little bit exhilarating and muscle building. As you said, there's there's um I work with Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, yes. and he talks a lot about anti-fragility. And the idea behind that is that some things are fragile. If I drop this bottle, it would break. And then some things are resilient. If you bounce a ball, it comes back just as fine as when it went down. But there are some things that are anti-fragile. They need tension. They need a little difficulty. They need some, some pushback to grow stronger. And there's examples like the uh, the immune system needs to encounter some germs. You grow up in a bubble and you just don't develop your immune system. And similarly, I don't do any of these exercises, but I should. There's those weight-bearing exercises where you're pushing against something that's heavy, and that is actually building up bone mass. Mm -hmm. um, but the ultimate in anti-fragile systems is the child, right? They need to be upset some of the time and hurt some of the time and scared some of the time and betrayed some of the time. And of course, loved, treasured, exhilarated, um, a great relationship with an adult in their life. I mean, they need all sorts of things, but they don't only need the good things. They need to be scared sometimes. Mm -hmm. And what you were talking about before, it's sort of a wholesale um, gradual disbelief that kids can handle anything. And that's why I was looking for these quotes from seventh graders, because I went and visited a class that was doing um, the Let Grow project, where children are told, school children are told, you have to go home and do something new with your parents' permission, but without your parents. That's the Let Grow project. You do it all year. It's the Let Grow experience. But here's what some of the kids wrote when the teacher asked, what were you kind of hesitant to do? Seventh graders are 12 and 13 years old. Um, I wasn't comfortable going into a crowded store with a bunch of strangers without my mom. I was hesitant to try walking my dog alone. These are kids in the suburbs uh, because I was scared that he would get loose from the leash or a scary man would take me. Here's another kid. I was afraid to try and cook because there's an open flame and I could get hurt. Um, another kid. I was hesitant to use a sharp knife as my parents had never let me before. So just tell me your reaction to these. I mean, I, I pulled these out because they meant something to me. What, what do they mean to you? A kid who hasn't used a knife or, or walked It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because this is why we have a generation of anxious children. They don't understand their own power. They don't understand their own critical thinking skills. Um, they've been denied the experiences that help them trust themselves, their capabilities, um, I think failure and trying hard things are vitamins for yes. a, for a we growing talk about that actually, yeah, for a growing human being. So I, they're they're emotionally nutrient deficient. Yes. And what is doubly sad about that is that these parents are so well intended. This oh, is oh, different. Yeah. You know, I work with trauma and abuse and neglect survivors. This is so different than someone who is neglected. So to have parents who are trying so damn hard to do the right thing by their kids and are so plagued with fear that they are actually regressing their own children into like a toddlerhood, which then depresses the child. Because at and 11, 12, <laughs> yes, at, at 11, 12, 13, 
to not know how to use a knife yeah. is, is sad. And that child, I think, processes that as, what is wrong with me that I am not capable here? Not, not that they think those words, but they feel that sentiment. And that's part of what grows this massive, massive victim mentality and this, this almost like glorification of fear. It's like fear is worshipped when we are living through the worst case scenario, I might get snatched constantly. I think we're teaching children to be hypervigilant before they're ever even traumatized. Right. Which is right, different right. than vigilant and smart. Hypervigilant is a nervous state. It means your nervous system is ungrounded. It means you are so terrified that your best thinking isn't at the helm. And right. I don't want that for any child. I, I want them to grow into the strongest virgin of, version of themselves. I know that I've gotten a lot of pushback. Sometimes I lose listeners for pushing that if we look back at history, human beings were made for tough things. We we can be massively hurt. We can cry and lay on the ground and be... I've been so depressed in my earlier life that my motor skills were... My, my motor, my psychomotor... You couldn't do anything. I, just, I could barely move. So to rob a child from the very nutrients that help them know that they are capable, that they can face hard things, um, is a tragedy. So, A, agree. <laughs> B, let's talk about the nutrient idea, because I think it's such a fantastic analogy for what we're talking about, which is that the kids have been robbed of nutrients, just as, I don't know, as regular society got more and more wealthy and, and um, you know, I guess the oh, industrial brother. revolution <laughs> brought us up to the to the current moment. We got to the point where, for instance, we could create the softest, whitest bread ever, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's so it's easy to chew. It's almost like cake, you know, hooray for us. We've, we've uh, reached the apotheosis of yummy soft bread. And then gradually we realized, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, in the process, we took out, we processed out uh, the the wheat germ or whatever it is, or the fiber or the, or the husk, all the different mm -hmm. parts of um, the, the old fashioned grains that we actually needed to have in that bread for our kids to grow up strong and healthy. And similarly, we took out so many of the bad experiences that, as you said, we overcompensated and we got to the point where there's almost nothing left in childhood except being with your parents and shuttled to places and always supervised by adults and always told how to do it and what to do it and always you know, it's, it's, as you say, from a point of love, it's like, let me point these things out to my kid and let me enrich their time and let me make a teachable moment. But we never realize how much we're taking out of kids' lives by not letting them do any of this discovery and sort of stumbling on their own to, to make them anti-fragile. So um, I've been talking about this for a long time and I've watched the results when, when kids do this let grow project, right? We've just seen kids. I just met a Kids the other day, I was like three weeks ago, I was at a school where um, there was an assembly of the children ages K through kindergarten through fifth grade who had all done at least two Let Grow projects. And some of them were stunning to me because it was, a, a, I heard from a third grader who said that he had made a sandwich, which to me seemed like something that you could do pretty much at three or four, really, mm -hmm. you know, two pieces of bread and a piece of bologna. That sounds pretty easy. But in fact, he hadn't done that because there'd always been somebody making his food. And what he said is, 
um, because now he knows how to make it. He said, now I know what to do if I'm hungry. So actually, we, you know, talk about sort of stymieing a child. You know, he, he didn't have a way to feed himself, but now he does. So even though it seems like something that you could do earlier, he started doing it now. And similarly, there was another kid who took the elevator in his building, which was, uh, you know, this is New York City. It's a, it's a fancy building with a, a doorman at the bottom. And he had to take it by himself for his Lecro project. And he said, by doing it, he realized, now I, now I realize I can be okay when I'm alone. And the important thing about that lesson is he didn't look, just learn I can be in the elevator by myself. Mm-hmm. He learned that, hey, I can do things by myself. And I'm, I wish I could find the, the, there was one girl who took the bus by herself. And her story was so great because she said when she was on the bus, the first time city bus in Manhattan, it felt very scary and everybody seemed mean and she was nervous the whole time. But she said, but now I take it, you know, and it's great. It's easy and it's fun. And that's what we've deprived our kids of is that that um, transition from, you know, fearful toddler <laughs> to blossoming young person who is OK if they're alone and can handle themselves on, you know, in public. And so I've been talking about this so long that a psychologist started listening. Thank God. <laughs> At least one <laughs> besides you. And uh, his name is Camilo Ortiz, and he's a professor of psychology at Long Island University. And he thought, you know, I wonder if kids have been deprived of this independence to the point where they're so anxious, because we have seen that as, you know, independence has gone down, anxiety and depression have gone up over the decades, not Mm -hmm. just since phones, not just since the (laughs) Ukrainian war. It's just like it's been decades in the making. Um, And he said, I wonder if independence could be used as therapy. And so with a graduate student named Matt Fastman, he ran a pilot study where they recruited uh, four families with a kid who had a diagnosis of anxiety. So it's not just my kid's a little anxious. They're, you know, they, they somehow passed some, some threshold. And what was neat about it is that the first week he would meet with the, just the parents and find out what the kid was anxious about. And I'll tell you one kid, which was, um, he was 10 years old. He was slightly delayed, both physically and, um, I guess, what is intellectually. But um, and his parents were terrified for him, and he was at the point where he wouldn't go upstairs in his own home without his mom or dad coming with him. That's wow. that's the point where his anxiety. He wasn't the only kid like that. There were two. <laughs> so um, so the parents came and they told the this to Camillo, and he's like, okay. And then the next week. When the kid came, normally in cognitive behavioral therapy, you do exposure therapy. You say, okay, you're afraid of, I hear you're afraid of walking upstairs. How about tonight you go upstairs and you stay there for five minutes and then, you know, come down. And then next week we'll do it for 10 minutes, which is a great way to do things. But there's a problem with that, which is that the kid doesn't want to do it. The parents don't like to do it. And often even the therapist doesn't like to do it because it is making a kid deal with something, you know, literally. Be uncomfortable. Be uncomfortable. Yes. So, so he didn't do that. Instead, he said to the kid, you're 10. I'll bet there's all sorts of stuff that you want to start doing now that you're 10 that you haven't done yet. What are some of those things? Think big. Think really big. And so the kid is like sort of free. And he's like, well, I'd like to, you know, I've never been able to walk home from school. I'm always, you know, taken home. And I'd like to do, you know, I'd like to go by myself here. And I want to play chess in the park. I mean, whatever it was, he just came up with idea after idea. And they were joyful ideas because they were things he wanted to do as opposed to things that he was terrified of. 
And his parents had been primed to say yes. <laughs> they, I mean, they they actually talked about it with the therapist and with the kid, you know, independence is great. The more independence, you know, you're ready for some. And so the first thing he did was he was walking home. He wanted to walk home from school. And his mother was so beside herself, she had to take the day off of work because she could not function. And he walked home from school, you know, wasn't that big a deal. He actually got a little turned around, but he walked home and it was fine. And the next day he walked home and he just started walking home. Then he wanted to take the Long Island Railroad, which is a commuter railroad. And, you know, your parents have to say yes. So they said yes. And he went about four different, they dropped him off at one place and they picked him up four stops later, which is about 10 miles. And that was great. And then he did all these other things, whatever they were. And this was during the summer before sixth grade. And sixth grade is middle school when you're just about, you start a new school. And so middle school comes around and the school sends out a letter. You know, the first day of school, you're going to get your locker, your homeroom, the combination to your locker. You know, you're going to find out who's in your class. And this is a big day. And we understand, feel free to bring your parents with you because we know this is a lot. You know, it's a transition. All transitions are written as if they're they're too much for kids to handle. Uh, but this kid said to his parents, I got this. <laughs> I can do this. And he went small, though he is, and a little intellectually delayed, though he is. And he went to the school by himself that first glorious day. And when he came home, he told his parents, guess what? I was like almost the only kid there who wasn't there with a parent. And how exhilarating, not just for the kid, but for the parents. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the things that we've deprived today's parents of, which is the joy of recognizing what your kids can do without you. I mean, we're yes. hardwired to want that, you know, because you want your kids to survive. You want your kids to thrive. And you don't know if they're going to be OK without you if you're always with them. Yes. <laughs> so by doing by by making independence a priority as opposed to a disaster, a danger that you're avoiding at all costs everybody feels better. And, and there's sort of no downside, except your kid could get a little lost or could maybe be scared of a dog. And even that's good because then you realize, you know, a bad thing happened. I was scared or the dog was mean, or I got lost part of the way and I had to turn around and retrace my steps and I'm still okay. Right. We're so afraid of our kids making bad choices or, you know, having some frustration or being a little scared that we don't realize the only way to get over those is by exposure to real life. Experience is its own anti-anxiety pill and it's it, with little to no side effect. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yes. And living through this lens of worst case scenario. So the, the main question, I, I can almost hear people saying it as we're talking is, but what if the worst thing happens? Now I have, in, in the way that certain things just sort of burn into our minds when we see them, I have from many, many years ago, decades ago, America's Most Wanted. John Walsh had a program for kids to learn what to do if somebody tried to grab them. And I watched that as a child. And I remember them doing a follow-up episode where one of the little girls, she was in elementary school, she was a pretty little blonde thing. And she was little bitty. She was probably just maybe like seven. Mm -hmm. And she was cool as a cucumber. <laughs> and when they interviewed her, somebody in a car had tried to grab her. Wow. And she had been taught you don't ever get in somebody's car and you make noise and you scream and you bite and you kick and you fight. And she did. And that mm -hmm. man drove that car down the road. She was dragged a little bit and she was fighting him until she got away. And when they interviewed her, 
-hmm. there was not a bit of fear on that child. She was very, very grounded. And she said, yeah, I knew exactly what to do. And I knew this guy was a bad guy and he was wrong. And so I fought and fought and I wasn't going to get in his car. And you could just see the empowerment on this child. Like this child is going to be so okay in this world because that child just learned through experience that she can handle herself even with a big grown adult. And there is nothing that any other human being can say to another human being that gives that. And I think we're living mm -hmm. through a time where parents think if I just box up the right amount of safety and I tie it with a bow and I give it to my child, my child's going to be okay in the world. And I wish that was true, but it's not. It is absolutely not true. So we have to stop parenting entire generations through the absolute worst case scenario of a murderer could grab you. And that's because we're thwarting their lives and their development because of a very rare worst case scenario at a time when every statistic out there thinks that that type of crime is lower than ever before in history, which is just to me another crazy layer mixed into this entire dynamic. You know, you say everything I say and you say it better. So I just I just I'm nodding along. And the one the one direction I thought you might go is that you know, if you want to talk worst case scenarios, let's talk about the levels of anxiety and depression and self-harm. <laughs> I have an addiction specialty. And that that's mm -hmm. another thing that is happening right now. Addiction is higher than ever before. Mm -hmm. If we are launching terrified children that, are, that believe that they themselves are incapable because of how they've been raised to manage adult life, to me, that is like driving them to a drug dealer's house and dropping them <laughs> off because drugs are going to appeal to them to try to manage their emotions in this world because they haven't been given those fortifying experiences that strengthen them for everything that they're going to face in this life. That's exactly true. And so when we're talking about worst case scenarios, at least, I mean, first of all, I don't think we should because that's already just depressing and sort of off the charts. But if you are going to talk about something horrible could happen, at least put at least put depression and anxiety on the list, uh, yes. maybe above the idea of uh, of a predator. I, you know, I actually looked up the statistics recently because I was writing a piece about how wrong we are in terms of how dangerous we think the world is, um, especially in terms of kidnapping. Do you know how many active Amber Alerts are, are out right now? Mm -mm. Two. In the entire country? Two in the entire country. Actually, one of them isn't in the country. One of them is a kid who was, whose father took him in, back to Mexico. And the other one was a 15-year-old who disappeared in Cincinnati, a, a boy. And my guess is that he's a runaway or something like that. But Wow. It just feels like they're always, oh, what about all the Amber Alerts? What about them? It's like, well, go go, go look at the Amber Alert, you know, go, go Google Amber Alerts and you will see there's two. So the idea that all our children are in constant danger from kidnapping is one that's new. And the, the thing that I think that's different about today's parents, and this is why I, I feel sympathy as opposed to scorn. You know, I don't think these are horrible harpy helicopter parents who are just, you know, ruining their kids' lives. I feel like they are being raised in a way, in a culture that's telling them, you know, you can't even let your kids stand at the bus stop alone. You're supposed to be with them. And some schools won't let the kids off the bus in the afternoon uh, unless they're in, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade, unless there's an adult walking them home, even 
you know, two houses. I had a mom complain that the bus driver <laughs> wouldn't let the kid off at her at the end of her driveway unless she's waving from the window. I'm home. I'm home. Wow. You know, with her seven year old. So parents are sort of stuck um, in in the in in a society that has lost its way. And like we were just talking about before, the worst case scenario. So when I was a kid, and I'm so old that I walked to school in kindergarten, which used to be a normal thing. And what was different then was not that there was no crime, not that there were no bad guys ever, um, but that when I went around the corner, my mom, because it was the social norm, stayed home. And from that time till 3.30 in the afternoon, when I came home, she had to trust me, my neighbors, the neighborhood, her own parenting, the school. And so trust is sort of a muscle. And I feel like, you know, we've been talking about nutrients and the pills and like, what can we take to grow stronger? I feel like because we're either always expected to be with our children, literally, you know, watching over them or driving them or watching them by tracking them, uh, we never we never experience what it means to not be watching them and to sort of trust to them or maybe even trust to God or certainly trust to the odds. All we're told is we can only trust ourselves. We can only trust ourselves to be with them, to drive them, to watch them. And it becomes an enormous burden on the parent because if anything goes wrong, it's because you are a horrible parent, not because sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes, you know, fate is fickle. And so it's this huge burden on the parent. And then the kid never gets the the world because there's always a minder with them. So um, I think that you have to separate from your kids to get your trust in them, for them to see that you trust them, and for them to start trusting themselves. I could not agree more. And if a parent can't give that trust to the child, even when they're scared and frightened to do so, then that child has almost no chance to grow learning how to trust themselves. And if you don't trust yourself, you have an anxiety disorder, no doubt. So some people who have been listening for a while might go, why is Nikki talking about this stuff so frequently? I'm a child-free person, but I am passionate about child development because what I see in mental health is that most of what is wrong with our collective and individual mental health right now is that we're just not getting these sort of pertinent, important nutrients that prevent. And there is no way to study in all of science what we prevent. <laughs> so true. we have a real conundrum. So most of my work is not so much healing, or maybe it's 50-50 healing and preventative. But I can't prove that. I can't tell you how much I've prevented or helped other people prevent in terms of anxiety disorders, depression, anxiety. When we fortify ourselves with these human muscles and nutrients, we avoid much anxiety. I very much at this point in my career resist the idea that these are things that are wrong with the hardware of a human being. These are nurtured, learned, things. And if that's true, then we must learn a different form of nurturing to take ourselves away from what isn't working and towards what is. Most parents out there that bring their children to therapy really, really will, would do better to work on their own fear 
their own relationship with anxiety, their own relationship with trust, and if they're trying to overcorrect. I work with so many trauma survivors who were so undercared for in so many different ways as children and abused that they have children and very much, I think, in, in a conscious way, but more importantly, in a subconscious way, they try to overcorrect. So if their childhood was very unsafe, then they want to give their children all of the safety. And really, that's about healing themselves. Mm-hmm. And we must learn how to not project our own trauma onto our children if we are to have them, because they didn't have that experience. So mm-hmm. I believe that is a big part of what is going on in, in the sort of collective unconscious in this country. Yeah, that's interesting. Um I wonder if it's way more true of the traumatized parents than of the untraumatized parents, because I do see so much hovering and supervision. And like I said, part of it is just the culture. You know, the bus won't let the kid off. <laughs> unless I also think there. guidance. I, I think a lot of people my age, I'll be 44 this year. Mm-hmm. They, they will tell me, I feel like I made it to adulthood without any guidance. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of free range-ness maybe in mm-hmm. latchkey kids on that mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm. But I think the the downfall of that was that I, we didn't get a lot of guidance. We didn't get a lot of financial guidance. Uh, we didn't get a lot of, hey, this is how you healthily date. Like we didn't get a lot of relationship guidance. We didn't get a lot of healthy communication, education or guidance. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of us launched into adulthood not really knowing what to do. We had some muscles from that independent Mm -hmm. childhood a lot of us had, but we still didn't know what to do. So I think there's a lot of attempt at overcorrection, giving so much, but not realizing that you can't really tell someone wisdom. They have to experience. And there's a a balance and a dance and an artful dance to both support your child enough and know the art form of when to back off and and let them flail a little bit and let them find their way while they stumble. Think about a little baby that learns to walk. I use that example a lot. They're going to stumble. They're going to wobble. They're going to fall on their booties and their booties can take it. They're okay. Their booties and are built to take it. That's right. That's they were why you made got the for chubby it. legs and the, and the cute tush when they're little. Yeah. That's right. They were made for it. So And that just breaks my heart to see a parent that's trying to overcorrect for their own trauma. And the result is that their child is developing more anxiety than they need to. So I have, you've probably heard this too. I'd say the the easiest sort of lesson to Mm -hmm. prevent a lot of trauma for kids is this, and I will tell it to you. It's the Boy Scouts tell it too. It's not mine. It's just to teach your kids the three R's. Because most abuse, as I think you know, um, is from somebody the kid knows, maybe somebody in the family mm-hmm. or close family friend, not stranger danger, not because they were walking down the street, right? And so the three R's teach kids to recognize, resist, and report. Recognize, nobody can touch you, wear your bathing suit covers. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. You can, you can tell a three-year-old these things. Uh, resist. Like you were talking about that little girl, run, kick, scream. You know, if somebody's bothering you, you're allowed to make a huge ruckus and you should. And then the third R is for report. And that means report to me or to somebody else that you trust and love what happened, even if 
somebody said, I'm going to hurt you, or this is our secret, just report to me and I won't be mad at you. Yes. <laughs> right. So then you're taking away the secrecy, which is what the abuser wants. Right. And these three R's, which you can teach kids just like you teach them to stop, drop and roll. If they're ever on fire, most of them won't be on fire. But if you are on fire, I, I know to stop, drop and roll. <laughs> right. So if kids know to recognize, resist and report, that's going to keep them a lot safer than trying to keep them with you every single second because you don't trust the world. There was actually an interesting study done of, I, I always forget the word, but it's like, it's your world outlook. It's some, it's your priors, I think might be what the name okay. is. And um, a lot of parents think that they're helping their kids by teaching them. It's a dog eat dog world out there. Don't trust anybody, you know, don't be a sucker. I'm only helping you, you know, and and it turned out there was a long-term study and that found that um, far from helping kids, uh, this kind of world outlook and preaching, you know, always be on your guard, don't trust, most people are bad, um, is associated with bad outcomes almost across the board, like less, less happy marriages, uh, less success in business, less, um, less joy in your life, less successful families. I mean, it's strange to me because once again, parents are doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They think that they're toughening their kid for the world, but in fact, they're giving them a skewed view and and um, sort of undermining their their belief to go forth and find out about the world. I mean, I think that's why it doesn't work. For some reason, it doesn't work to tell your kids be on guard for the worst all the time. That actually is worse for them than telling them to trust. Well, I'm I can tell you like I grew up during the dare program for drugs and that's mm -hmm. exactly how they tried to scare us about every drug. So what happened to my generation is we went out there, we smoked a little pot and they told us we would jump off of buildings and kill ourselves if we did so. And then we did. And then we went, Oh, I don't believe you. So all the things you also told me about meth and heroin, yeah. I'm not gonna believe those things either. And so I'm just going to throw everything that you said out of the window. You know, so yes, so this this over, I'm gonna just make it all scary so they don't touch it fails. It backfires. Mm -hmm. And I am probably of the generation that has done the most drugs and is the most addicted. And and we had the dare program. So we have got to get ahead of the difference between a good intention and what actually works. Amen. <laughs> That's all I can say. Amen. Once again, I just wanted to um, just to reiterate that, you know, parents aren't immune from the 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 culture that they're swimming in. And so, you know, some of the stuff that we now think of as bad advice or or um, problematic decisions, so much of it is is not even up to us. I mean, if somebody's going to scream at you, if you let your kid wait at the bus stop or how come you're not with her? How come you let your kid wait in the car while you paid for the gas? It's like, cause I actually think it's going to be fine. And, and people are yelling or calling 911. You know, you got to have some sympathy for the parents who do end up, you know, hovering and intervening. I mean, schools send home reports on a daily basis of how the kid's behavior was that day and what their grade was on, you know, their homework and the quiz, these minor things. And parents are bombarded with so much information and so many worst case scenarios from, we were talking at the beginning about the media, that uh, you have to feel for them too, that they're stuck in a culture that really wants them to 
we were talking about at the beginning, go to the darkest place first and then decide if you're going to let your kid do anything. So yes, yes, there has been, I, I would even go so far as to say society has been brainwashed into that. Yes. I say that too. So, so because of that, um, the reason I'm very excited about Let Grow's two school initiatives, which are both free, is because you can't change a collective problem individually. And that means that if I think, wow, this is a crazy culture, of course my kid can walk to school and my kid is the only kid walking to school or my kid won't, that the school won't let them self-dismiss anymore or there's nobody for them to walk to school with or somebody, you know, is calling 911. So, when we suggest that schools do the let grow experience where they keep getting these projects to take home, go home and do something new on your own with your parents' permission, but without your parent, everyone's doing it at once. So I'm not the crazy mom who's letting my kid walk to school. This is the way, you know, uh, you know, my kid and three other kids are doing their, their, their let grow project is to walk to school this month. The next week they're, or next time they're going to um, go to the store or they're all going to make dinner. So it becomes normal again to give kids back some of the independence that most of us adults still remember from our own childhood. We could make pancakes without anybody saying, watch out. You could walk to the bus stop two blocks away and wait without, um, you know, a security detail. And, and the other, the other school thing that we suggest schools do is to stay open before or after school for just plain old mixed age, no phones, no devices, free play. Yes. So that kids are, you know, coming up with things to do and solving the problems. I was just talking to a lady who's doing a Lecro play club in Chicago, outside of Chicago in a poor neighborhood. And she said that they started during COVID and the kids would play COVID. <laughs> and some of the kids would be the uh, COVID and some of the kids would be the vaccine. And if the COVID kid got you before the vaccine, you had to lie on the ground and say, I'm dead. <laughs> and then if the vaccine kid came and saved you, fine. And, uh, and the, the administrators were appalled. Right. How, you know, this is horrible. How are you doing this? You know, the kids are saying I'm dead. It's bad for their psychological health. And it's like, no, it's not. It's actually great. They've, they've come up. What is play? Play is a way with, of dealing with life. Right. They're yes. scared. There's, you know, everybody, all the grownups are talking about COVID. Let's make it into a game. They do. They come back to life when they get somebody who's the, the vaccine kid touches them. And it was, it was brilliant. You yes, know, well, that's are, how they work it out. That's yeah. how kids work it out. Yeah. So if you keep your school open before or after school for what we call electro play club, you don't have to call it that. Kids will find new friends. I mean, I just heard a statistic yesterday. I guess it was from this lady um, who's the teacher in, in um, Cicero outside of Chicago, that 80% of the kids in um, in a like a social emotional survey that they did said, I don't know how to make a friend. That is heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. Yeah, we, we need to allow children to have experiences that are uncomfortable and messy and get left out. And I say a lot, like those of you listening over the podcast won't be able to see me right now unless you're watching on <laughs> YouTube. But it's like we want our children's wheels in their mind to turn. And when parents are doing too much for them, they just kind of stop turning and they get rusty. And then when you're not there for your child, those wheels aren't lubricated and, and flowing in their mind to turn because they can figure out so, so much. I think this is essential to changing the anxiety epidemic in our country I, right I, now. I totally agree. So, so when you talked about 
kids' brains, you know, engaging. There's a, there's one analogy, and then I'll tell you about one actual program. But the analogy is when you're the passenger in a car, you don't learn anything, <laughs> right? You don't learn the route. You don't learn like, oh, this is the place where it's always slippery. You're just you're just being delivered someplace, and that's a lot of childhood now, literally as passengers, but also. The adults are in the driver's seat. You're going to take this class and then I'm going to get you. And then I'm here, your, your homework and I have to sign your reading log and I got to get you up in the morning and drag you to school. There's, there's so little autonomy or what's, what's called, you know, this, the internal locus of control. Yes. The so locus important. of control in your life is somebody else is directing it all. And so when you talked about passivity is what it sounded like with the, with the wheels not engaging in the brain. So, um, there's a there's a sports organization. They do a lot of youth sports. It's called Steel Sports. They're in a bunch of states. And they had read, um, so Let Grow was co-founded also with a man named Peter Gray, who I recommend for your podcast. Maybe you've had him on, G-R-A-Y. I would love to have him. Oh, he's Thank so you. great. He's so great. And he writes about, he's an older guy, and he writes about the importance of free play in that all cultures have had this, except in times of slavery and war, children have always, um, and I guess child labor, children always play. And that's how they learn how to make a friend and how to make something happen and how to deal with frustration and how to be compassionate and how to be creative. All these wonderful things happen. So this, the head of Steel Sports read Peter Gray's book, which is called Free to Learn. And he thought, well, let me try. I'm going to have the coaches in like 10% of the um, of our programs give the first 10 to 20 minutes of any practice. Let's make it free play. Let's see what happens. And this was kind of countercultural because parents are paying for their kids to be in these sports. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is for 10 or, you know, for, you know, a, a chunk of that time, they're not going to get any instruction. They're not going to get any drills, right? They're just going to be goofing around, quote unquote. And, and you think that the coaches wouldn't like it either because I'm the coach. I'm going to teach these kids something. And now I'm just sort of sitting there. But what they found was many things. First of all, and this was so poignant, the kids run to the sports now instead of walking, right? Oh, wow. Which I thought wow. was very cool. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they, um, they ended up expanding this to their entire sports program, including their sports summer camps, because the kids became more creative, but better still, they were maybe not better still, but also they communicated better because they got used to saying, wait, no, let's do it this way. No, I don't like it. Let's turn the goalpost upside down. Oh, that's funny. Okay. How about we can only use our noses? They just became more aware of each other and more cohesive and better at talking to each other and like being engaged. But the, the thing I just found out this time, because I'd interviewed them before, but I hadn't interviewed them for about a year. And they said, and of course, now when the kids come, they throw down their their backpacks and they start playing. And I'm like, well, what'd they do before? And before they would go and they would sit on the bench and they would wait for the coach. So if you're talking about getting minds engaged, getting kids engaged, getting kids to love life, getting kids to love each other and make friends and make things happen, you have to release them. You cannot spend every moment saying, I'm going to make this so optimal for you. You're going to do exactly what I say. So you don't waste a second. So we don't, you know, so every moment is teachable because I'm an adult and I'm going to help you and I'm going to keep you safe and I'm going to keep you stuffed with information because I'm so smart. No, kids have to figure this stuff out on their own. Mm -hmm. You did, right? You got to trust your kids to be at least as smart and capable as you. And that means stepping back. And one of the other slogans of Let Grow 
is when adults step back, kids step up. And when we were talking at the very beginning, you were talking about how it felt as an 11-year-old, the adults stepped back and said, you're in charge of these kids. And you remember it to this day with a smile because that's when you realized who you were in the world. Yes. Yes. And it helped me grow into the leader that I am today. It was a shining part of a very dysfunctional childhood and it helped me survive. So parents, when you're out there and and you think, or you're, you're like, oh, Nikki, but what if something terrible happens? Here's the deal. If something terrible happens and they survive, help them through it. Because what are what are you thinking or saying or teaching them? You think that's they're going to live a life where bad things don't happen to them? They need to have some bad things happen while they're under your wing. So if you're overprotecting them, that can't happen. This is part of why I have helped so many people in the last 10 years who go to college and they absolutely melt down. They've never woken themselves up. They don't know how to get to, to their, their next class unless somebody is poking, prodding, pushing, guiding, telling them exactly what to do. Take this next step. Take this next step. Go to this building. The building's over there. I'll walk you to it. And they just fail out the first semester and come back home and then they're depressed. And then their parents go, I can't get them to leave my basement. I don't know. They need experience and they need to be loved through their capability so that they can learn to see themselves. That's what empowerment is. Empowerment is not some BS fluffy word that we just throw around. We need to be empowered so that we can face the tough things in life. And so we can have more joy with what's good and lovely and beautiful. There is no world where you get to birth a kid and have it live some kind of pristine, struggle-free <laughs> life. So give them the muscles to do so. And you will be so proud as a parent. And then you will watch your child be proud of themselves. And that, my 20 almost years of therapy experience, that is the antidepressant your kid needs. That is the anti-anxiety that you or your child will thrive on with no nasty negative side effects. <laughs> I, I want to end it there. That's that's an impassioned plea for everything I believe. And it's from a psychologist. So even better, a therapist. Thank you so, so much. Is there anything else you want my listeners to know about let grow. They are going to be our next Patreon. Pay it forward. I am so impassioned about what you are doing for our nation's children. Thank you, madam. Well, thank you, Nikki, for somehow. It's just so interesting when people come to the same realizations and 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 we haven't been together before, but it's like, yes, I, I agree with everything you said. And it's so neat the way you put all the ideas together. So for me, this is a, a this is like one that I want to pin, <laughs> that I want people to listen to. Um, as far as Let Grow, so Let Grow is really our, our goal is, our mission statement is to make it easy, normal, and legal to give kids back the independence that we think they need to, to grow and thrive. And uh, the easy and normal part are um, mostly through the schools. So if you have a kid in school or you're a school teacher or administrator or counselor, please consider going to letgrow.org and clicking on schools and seeing how you could start the Let Grow experience in your class and start a Let Grow play club before or after school. All our materials are free. <laughs> and then the legal part is that um, so far we've changed the law, the neglect laws in eight states. And um, right now we're working in California, Nebraska, and 
Georgia and Michigan. California's our big kahuna. Um, we've changed the law from neglect being often uh, defined by the state as anytime an adult doesn't provide proper supervision. But that's pretty amorphous. And, you know, we do hear about people getting, you know, investigated because their kid wandered away at a picnic or because they let their kid do something on their own. Um, so we're trying to narrow the definition of neglect so that neglect is only when you're putting your kid in obvious and serious danger. So if you want your kid to have some experiences and be a, you know, free ranger, but uh, it's good. And also if you are working two jobs and, you know, you don't have a lot of time or money and you know that your kid is going to be okay with that latchkey that we were talking about at the beginning. Well, that shouldn't be considered neglect either. Poverty is not neglect. So um, if you have any stories about this, or if you want to get involved in trying to change the laws in your state, once again, you go to let grow, but instead of clicking on schools, <laughs> you click on laws. And like I said, everything is free. Thank you so very much. It's been an honor. Ditto. Thank you so much, Lenore. Light and love. I am so grateful that Lenore came on as my guest today. You can find her organization at letgrow.org. And the second edition of her book, Free Range Kids, is available on Amazon now. We are proud to be a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. I'm an emotional badass. Lenore is an emotional badass. You are an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets mindful. Light and love. And I'll see you right here next time for a brand new episode. Bye-bye.